If you suddenly won the lottery and became a millionaire, how would you spend your time? Sure, at first you might take a big vacation and travel the world, pay off your debts, maybe buy a big fancy home or a nice car. But what about after that? Unless you're the type of person that's only seeking material things, you'd probably get bored after a while. And you'd probably get the itch to work on something fulfilling. I've always thought that if I didn't have to worry about money, I'd become a painter. I've always loved visual arts since I was a kid, but never seriously considered it a big girl job because the starving artist life is real. How do you pursue art while having financial stability? That's a question that today's guest, Michelle Faven, has figured out an answer to. Michelle is an artist and painter who recently took the leap to leave her glamorous job in the tech industry to pursue her art practice full-time. And no, Michelle didn't win the lottery. In fact, we discuss how she made the tough decision to turn down a surefire path to financial success and instead go down a path that's completely unknown and risky. But less than a year in, Michelle's already seeing some of the fruits of her decision. She just released her first series of canvas paintings and sold all six pieces within days of launch. Michelle cares deeply about race and social equity issues and has always allocated a percentage of her profits from her art to different nonprofit organizations. Choosing to work on her art practice also means working closely with the equity issues she cares about, as well as working with other creatives and living life at a slower, more mindful pace. In this episode, Michelle takes us through her journey into full-time art, opening up the black box of pricing and how commissions work, whether to get a studio space and how to set it up, and her way of using Instagram that's authentic and not forced. After you finish listening to this episode, I'd love to know how you would spend your time if you didn't have to worry about money. Would you make any changes to the way you're living now? I'd love to know. Send me a DM or tag me on an Instagram story at Inside Out with Jane. One more thing before we begin. We had some technical issues with the mic recording this episode, and so the sound quality will be a little bit muffled. So I do apologize about that, but hopefully you'll still be able to get something out of this episode. All right, on to the show. This is Inside Out with Jane Z, the podcast that helps you build a thriving business without losing your mind. My name is Jane, and my mission is to help you build and grow your business while having time for the people and things that matter in your life. Join me every Tuesday as I sit down with an entrepreneur who's already building their dream business. We'll walk through their journey, tips for success, and how to mentally prepare for the long road ahead. Because building your dream business and dream life is the long game. And that's what we're all about right here on Inside Out. Welcome to the podcast, Michelle. Maybe you can introduce yourself and what you're working on these days. Yeah. So my name is Michelle Faven. I'm an artist and specifically a painter. I would say that I'm in the like early to mid stages of building my practice and I'm hoping that I shed light on what that experience is like. Did you start making art like at a young age and then it kind of became a part of your life? For sure. I mean, 
A hundred percent. I was one of those kids that was constantly painting, whether with watercolor, with my grandmother. I have this like very visceral memory of sitting with my grandmother and she's made me tomato soup and we're like painting and there's, you know, those really cheap um, watercolor books that we used to have as kids that the paper was like the thinnest possible paper you could have. But I just like (laughs) had so much fun. And then remembering I used to doodle a lot of anime characters as well. And I have this whole book of uh, female superheroes that I would draw and doodle all day. So yes, I've always been uh, interested in the arts. Um, But painting didn't really come back to me until after college. What did you end up studying in college? Did you do anything art related? No, it's so funny. Actually, in high school, the way that I expressed myself most uh, was actually in theater and music. Mm -hmm. So I played violin like a good Korean girl. (laughs) Violin and piano. As I was getting ready for college, most of my friends and most of my community thought, oh, like Michelle's going to go and um, be an actress. And I got into University of Maryland on a full ride for theater. I auditioned. My director at the time was like really invested in me as a performer and was like, try and do this. So I won some, I think it was like the Distinguished Scholars for Performing Arts Award. And then I, simultaneously, I had applied to NYU. And New York, especially as a performing arts person, was like a huge dream for me. I got into NYU, but into their general colleges of arts and sciences program. I didn't even apply Mm. as, you know, to Tisch or for theater. Mm. Even though I loved theater and like the idea of being an actress was very uh, glamorous. I think I had a deep knowing within me that I wouldn't be fulfilled if my whole career and life purpose revolved around what I looked like, how I appeared. And that's not to say that that's true, especially now of actors and actresses. I think there's incredible work being done on diversifying stories in Hollywood. But I think at the time, I felt like this wasn't actually supposed to be my full career path. So I said no to the full ride at Maryland. I had taken a class my senior year of, of high school on sociology and had always been somebody who was really uh, interested in race and equity, just being mixed. My, my dad's side of the family is, you know, Russian, Ashkenazi Jew. My mom's side of the family is Korean. My mom came to America when she was 23. So I was like, you know, grew up very multicultural and like slightly confused, <laughs> but not, not in a bad way, but just in a like, wow, sure. like what's it like to be this mixed kid? This is fascinating right. to me. Kind of have to craft your own identity. Exactly. And so I, and then I learned about sociology and I was like, oh, whoa, you can study this. And actually mm-hmm. race and identity is huge implications on how we live in America. And so yeah. as I was realizing that I didn't want to kind of put myself at the center of my career, I got really, really, really interested in the world of sociology, specifically around race and specifically around education. So mm-hmm. that took me to NYU. I found sociology and public policy, and I just really dove into that work. And this was now back in 2007, before it became part of now, everybody's talking about, in a good way, mm-hmm. everybody's talking right. about race and identity and what does it mean. But, um, you know, I kind of... In, uh, immersed myself in it and it has nothing to do yeah, with art so you're like how did she become a painter <laughs> I mean it's interesting because you can have all these subject matter that mm. you're interested in and then art I see as where mm. you synthesize yes. these conversations into some kind of 
you know, creative thing for the world. Absolutely. So before we dive into that, I do want to hear a bit about some of your career highlights. Yes. So what yeah. you ended up doing after yeah. college and grad school where we met, yes. you ended up going deep into education. What were some of the major steps in your career? For sure. So I've done a lot of things in my 31 years. And the beautiful thing about it is when I look back on it all, exactly what you said, it was all gathering information to be where I'm at now, which is kind of translating and synthesizing that information in a visual way. So as I was in college learning about sociology, I got really interested in education. I think young people are incredible. I think they are tiny philosophers. So after college, I was a teacher. I taught first grade. One of those charter school networks that I actually vehemently disagree with. It's a you know mm. a very strict, slightly militaristic setup for students, primarily black and brown students. It felt very uh, wrong. Mm. But in that process, my first teaching experience, you know, really following that internal compass of this isn't how you know first graders should be treated. And so I kind of would like right. shut the door and I was like, okay, you're, you're in first grade. What's important is curiosity and asking questions. What's important is creativity. So without mm. even really me thinking about it, I just happened to infuse all of my lessons with art and creativity. And because some of my students, I learned later, and nobody told me this in the school, I kind of figured it out on my own, had various learning differences. So whether it was auditory mm. processing or visual processing. And so I ended up defaulting to art as a way for some of my students to find peace. You know, if there was a student who was mm. having like a particularly hard day, you know, giving them paint, allowing them to express themselves. Seeing how healing art making could be, and then on top of that, the way that I describe it is like self-solidifying. Like when you make something and it's purely your own, you're not copying anybody else, you're just expressing yourself with colors and shapes, there's this real sense of like internal satisfaction and this mm -hmm. way of seeing yourself outside of yourself that I think can be so gratifying for people of all ages, little, you know, five-year-olds who I love and miss to this day to adults. Wow. Um, that's yeah. amazing. I I'm imagining you as like this, like secret Montessori teacher oh, in, this, like, in this like militant school. That's, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah. But also amazing that you had this impulse to like when a kid is acting up to be like, here's paint, like go yeah, make something. Totally. Have you kept in touch with any of your students? I mean, I know they must have been <sighs> super young at the time. You know, I, so I left that school after the first year for obvious reasons. Mm. And I kept in touch with a lot of them. Like we would send letters mm. to each other. I visited the school a couple oh. of times. After I left that school, I got really interested in atypical learning styles. And so I became more of a private Tutor, and I worked with students that were on the spectrum of ADHD, had auditory processing disorders. And that's really where art became central to it because it was just me. I didn't have anybody telling mm. me what to do. And I was learning from these really amazing um, teachers who had been um, using body movements for learning and art for learning. Those students I worked with for four or five years just individually. And some of those wow. like follow me on Instagram. <laughs> those students I got really close with because it was much more of like a a mentorship and mm. a tailored curriculum for them. Right, right. So at one point you decided to go to grad school yes. in education. When I was in LA and I was doing more of this private work, that's when I started to make art myself via greeting cards. 
I was just like, this seems fun and like low stakes. And I just yes. like, I printed maybe a thousand of them. And then I took a road trip across the country with them. And I like went into stores and was like, oh, I like doing the selfies. And they ended up doing really well. It was just, it was just an experiment. Wow. And then from there, that's when people started to be like, oh, can you do other things? Can you do a commission for me? So anyways, I had this like a lot of things going on in LA. I was working for a juice shop. I was working for this like adorable store, Paquetto in Los Angeles. I was illustrating and doing art. And at the yeah. same time, the I felt like I still had my roots and my heart in equity and social justice issues. I really needed a way to bring them all together. That's how I found the Harvard Arts and Education Program. And it's not a specific art therapy program. It's more of exactly what I wanted, which was a container to explore all of these seemingly disparate concepts. You have art, you have healing, you have, you know, identity, you have expression, um, you have equity. One of the only requirements of this concentration in the Graduate School of Education was like a Friday seminar. And the way that my friends and I would describe it, it was, it was a little bit like adult preschool, but in a good way, <laughs> like we would sit in a circle and it was very somatic. You know, we would talk about how our bodies would feel and we'd talk about, we'd like, you know, share our feelings and our art projects. Um, and sometimes it was very theoretical. Like we did read, you know, really incredible texts, but it, it yeah. really felt like a container where all of these people who were doing something in the arts could talk about about their concentrations. So it's like a very warm and it fuzzy place. Really, I mean, they do call the Harvard Graduate <laughs> School of Education Hugsy for a reason. It's very <laughs> oriented. And in that program, I met my now one of my best friends of all time, creative co-collaborators, Alicia English. And I think that the most consolidated curriculum that came out of my time at, at Harvard was uh, through this initiative that we created that was oh a space for women of color to explore issues of identity and telling her story. Alicia had a performing arts background. She's an incredible poet. We met and that's really where I think I dug into the kind of idea that art is something that can be a vehicle of self-discovery and specifically for voices that have been silenced or marginalized a space to really be fully yourself unapologetically and what that feels like without anybody telling you what it needs to look like and so we held a couple of really amazing workshops that year maybe this is a good time to talk about those themes in your art and how yeah. you weave it into your practice i, I know in your painting practice, you draw from your mixed heritage mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. use natural pigments mm -hmm. in your painting can you talk about the different elements of your work and maybe how that's evolved over time? For sure. And it, it actually, at this moment, is in the process of really evolving in a, to a place that I feel really, really good about. I think for a while when I was painting, I had like my art, my equity and my activism work. And then I had my paintings that were pretty and maybe loosely on topics that I would talk about, but they weren't as explicit. Whereas now, yeah. the series that I'm working on now is much more, actually, I'm just going to paint directly about the things that I care about. And right now, those are things like interconnection, mm -hmm. both with the planet when it comes to climate justice, but also with each other. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest um, concepts I've been noodling over, especially post-pandemic, is this idea of how is it that some people can feel as though they are an island and that their behavior doesn't affect other people. You know, this idea of like 
silos mm. of, of humans. Like that to me is very confusing. Whereas like in the pandemic, we learned that everything is so connected that your choices are going to affect somebody that you may never see. And then I think stylistically, you spoke about pulling from my mixed heritage. I think my style is there is like a blend of modern abstraction, but also takes a lot of inspiration from East Asian ink wash, which is kind of like no more, no less. You're not trying to make something look exactly like as we see it in the world, but more of an essence of like if I'm painting a body, for example, like how can I express it in as few forms as possible and really evoke Mm. feeling rather than exactly what it looks like. When I think of your work, Matisse comes to mind mm-hmm. with his line drawings, mm-hmm. but who are some of the artists that inspire you? I can think of artists that are, you know, capital A artists. You know, there's one that in particular that I love. Her name is Camilla Engstrom. She's, you know, her. She's, I follow her through you. I mean, but she yeah, just, she's amazing. I, when I look up to her because, you know, she's very successful and she just seems like she's having a blast. She's, she's always really, dancing in her studio. She's dancing. She's so herself. Her work is so joyous. And I think also about things that she cares about. She paints a lot about mm. the, the environment. And it's still beautiful. You know, just because you're painting about topics that are really heavy doesn't mean that it has to be inherently like very dark. I just really admire the way that she seems like she's having fun and she's not taking herself too seriously. Um, so I really love her. But in reality, the artists that inspire me are the people just in my life even if they don't identify as a capital A artist. Like you have my friend Alicia, who I've spoken about, who is very much more a capital A poet. But my partner, who has a full-time job, but is also creating a daily doodle every single day. Or like I have an incredible community of makers here in San Francisco. Uh, my friend Rachel Nevers is making incredible um, stained glass. I have my friend Lisa Tsubaushi, who's a ceramicist. My friend Emily Gravis, who's a jewelry maker. And also just the people in my life that don't identify as artists or makers at all, but have picked up a watercolor practice in the pandemic and are just using it Mm. as a way to express themselves and like have a moment of peace and healing after a hard day. It sounds like you have a really strong community around you Mm. of people who are creative and are artists in their own way. One of the cons, I guess, like I would imagine about being a solo artist is the solo part. I'm personally a very extroverted person. And so trying to do creative things just by myself has limits. And so it sounds like you've gathered a community around you. I think I'm an introverted extrovert. I definitely love people. Mm. And also, I really like geeking out by myself and spending hours and hours Mm. in the studio just by myself. And so this business setup that I've worked for myself is really nice because the majority of the time I'm working in the studio alone. I think about myself as a kid playing alone, drawing and doodling for hours, but then I'm able to bring in collaborators when needed. So for example, I just worked with an incredible brand designer, Ari Marina. Um, She helped me design some packaging. I have an incredibly talented photographer friend, Mandy Brusa, who's coming this Friday to take really beautiful photos of my new paintings Mm. I have a friend, Michael Scharf, who's a woodworker who, you know, we worked on making frames together. So it's really nice for me because I can geek out alone by myself. I can set my own hours and be my own boss, but I can really bring in people that are experts in their field to add to my practice. Um, Mm. And then really beautiful friendships are born out of that. And, you know, one of my favorite things to do as a, a business owner is to hire other creatives and pay their full rate. It really brings me a lot of joy to 
be able to do that. Yeah, that's such a huge milestone. Yeah. yeah. Feels good. I want to, and mm-hmm. I want to continue doing that, you know. Definitely. I want to talk about your studio space too. Yeah, for sure. I've seen through your Instagram stories that you've moved a couple times yes. to different spaces. Yes, like they all look beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Got to find just the right setup. Yeah. Can you talk about like how you think about investing yes. in space for yourself? And for anyone listening who's thinking about taking the leap and doing art full time, mm-hmm. how would you recommend thinking about that? Yeah, for sure. So I can talk about my philosophy on a sp- having a space in general and then kind of how I think about setting up my space, which I think both of those things are important. It is a, for sure a privilege to have a space separate for your art. You know, especially if you're in a big city like San Francisco, it's expensive. And so I don't think it's necessary. I really don't. For many years, I painted where I could and it worked fine. I've been very grateful to have a steady stream of commissions for even though I haven't been doing it full, full, full time. And most of those commissions I made at a desk or at a kitchen table. And so I want to really stress Mm. that you can make art where you set the intention to make art. And also, if you've reached a point in your career where you're feeling an itch that like, I think actually having a big space is going to allow me to really expand in my practice and maybe be seen in a different way. And you have the means to be able to do that. I think it's a really great investment. So Mm. for me, I've had like a couple of different studio spaces in the last year and a half, but Mm. it wasn't until I really branched out to get a sizable space and it doesn't have to be huge that I started doing work on canvas. You know, I've been painting for a really long time and I kind of siloed myself into, oh, I paint watercolor on paper. And that's great. Mm -hmm. I love doing that. And at a certain point, I was like, I think there's a way to to grow a little bit. And and I didn't really have the space to have to set out canvases or to work with messier paints like acrylic or like oil. I felt like I I had enough momentum in my practice to take the leap to invest in something a little bit bigger. And most importantly, not only bigger, but the like a space that I could leave messy. <laughs> not all the time, because that goes into my philosophy right. of keeping a space, but um, I think that part of experimentation requires mess. And when mm-hmm. you're painting in your house and maybe you have roommates or a partner or a dog, you can't leave stuff out. The setup that works the best for me personally is actually being able to have a room in my own house. Like I've experimented with having an art studio that's more of a community space. And that's amazing because you can like meet incredible people, go to events and everything is really built in. But I think it for me personally, it goes back to the feeling of being an introverted extrovert. And there's sometimes that I just want to, you know, play Janaeco and and paint for six hours and not really yes. talk to anybody, you know? So I feel like with setting up an art space, the, the balance that I really try to find is calm and chaos. And mm. the calm comes from, you want your space to be clean, you know, like not dirty. That doesn't mean that you don't have, you know, I'm looking at like five jars that are covered in paint. It's not that, but you need to take care of it. You know, maybe your paints are out, but they're organized in a way that you can see them. And that goes to the chaos part because when you Mm -hmm. actually come to painting, being able to see all your paints out and all your brushes out is allows you to like more easily experiment. And then that way, like if I'm painting something, I'm like, Oh, this could use some white or maybe a little bit of black mixed with this color. I can easily reach it and play with it. Mm -hmm. and it gets pretty messy 
And then the calm comes back in where if I notice around me that there's like a lot of paint out, a lot of different water jars, and it's getting a little like hectic, that's my time that I actually don't go further into that. I take a step back and I clean up my space. And I do that maybe once or like two or three times a day when I'm painting, because again, that goes back to the calm thing. Like let yourself experiment, but then take a second to like clean it all up and like take a breath. Because when you enter into that super chaotic space, that's when like little mistakes happen. Like there's been so many times that I've accidentally kicked over a glass that had water in it. (laughs) Yeah. Bring back the calm. So now that your paintings are getting larger and you're using canvas and oil and all that fun stuff, how long typically does one painting take you? It really depends. Because I work a lot with water and paint, there's a lot of waiting for layers to dry. Another balance that I play with a lot is intention and spontaneity. Most of my paintings start with an intention. Like there's some why behind the painting that I want to make. Maybe it's a feeling that I want to capture either for myself or a client, a value that I want to express. And some, most of the time, not always, there's like an idea of a composition. But mm-hmm. then within that, I, I, I like need to have some spontaneity in it. And that comes from just the conversation I have with the canvas. And, mm. and the reason why I think that spontaneity is so important to me is because my art practice, when I really, really boil down to it, it's not about me. The way that like maybe theater at that time was about me. Like it's about my language, but I'm like hopefully tapping into some sort of value in the collective consciousness. And I'm just a vessel. I'm just like, I'm just a a language for whatever is happening here. And so that spontaneity and waiting for layers to dry allows me to like paint something that I wanted to paint. But then once I see it down there, I'm like, ooh, actually, I think the canvas actually wants a layer here and a layer here. I would say average painting will take me, if I'm working on it straight, three to seven days with like time in between to just sit and marinate. Do you typically work on just one painting at a time? No, or you? No. So I'll get to a point with the painting and then I'll think, okay, I don't know what to do next. I don't have that internal feeling of it's done. And so I'm just going to wait. And so I'll start on another one. Like I have all of these creative babies in a way, like being birthed at different rates. Love that. I do want to talk about commissions. Maybe this is a good time to talk about your business model, finances, money, all the the good stuff, how you decided to go into this full time and leave your job. Did you reach a point with your art that you, you know, were making enough to sustain yourself Mm -hmm. or how'd you make that decision? So I was working at Twilio for the last couple of years. I, I knew that the vision was like work at a company and save a lot of money so that I can start doing the art again full time. So that was my intention. I reached a point at Twilio where, and this is the dramatic part, where it's like I saw a crossroads. I saw like a fork in the road. And mm-hmm. at Twilio in my career, I was doing really well. I had somehow found myself in this role where I was a creative producer for their big shows. And I was working really close with the C-suite. I was very glamorous. I was like traveling everywhere. But And just, sorry, yeah. just for the audience, Twilio oh, is yes. a tech... Do you want to describe? Sure. It's a company that specializes in communication APIs. 
I like to think about it as modernizing the way that telecommunications works. So out of legacy hardware and into the cloud and APIs. And so, you know, it's the reason why Tanzania can have 911 without having, you know, a physical switchboard out there. It's also the reason why your Lyft driver can, you know, send you a test message. All of those kind of new ways of communicating are via so the fork in the road that I felt was I, I had gotten to the point where I was pretty good at my job, you know, and I was like, there's a choice here. I can either continue down this path and be really good at being a creative keynote producer at the point, you know, I was getting recruited by Apple to go work on their keynotes. And that's in the tech wow. world, it's kind of like pinnacle of that's that. That's huge. Or I could recommit my, myself to at the time, which was my like pretty quiet group the, the entrepreneurs out there that can have a full-time job and also work on their creative pursuits full-time, I admire you, but I couldn't do that. And I think it's because I'm, I'm very much an all-in person. I want to do a good job. Even if it's not my passion, I'm going to do the best job I can. So the fork in the road was like, I do this. It's a surefire path to the old definitions of success. Or I could do the really exciting thing that is really unknown. At the same time, there was also a lifestyle fork in the road. The world of tech and and the path that I was on, it was really fast and it was really intense. And I can do that and I can be that person in the startup world. But I didn't, when I took a step back, and saw the bird's eye picture of my life, that's not how I wanted to be. I didn't want to be bing, bing, bada boom, get things done. At my core, I, I actually like a really, I, I like slow. I like mm. intentionality and, and mindfulness. And it was really hard to let myself be more of that yin energy mm. in that environment. And I didn't like what it was doing to all other parts of my life. That was another really big reason. And then the third reason is I had met this incredible woman, Kat Co. She's a creative coach in San Francisco. And we had an introductory call. She kind of helped people like me get back into their creative life. And I asked her, you know, what type of people are you really successful with? And she said, I work best with the people who you can imagine your life as a Netflix series. And it's the end of season one. And everybody's watching what you're going to do next. I help people choose the decision that's going to make everybody in the audience lean forward and say, gosh, I'm so excited that Michelle just did that instead of that. And it really hit me because when I'm 60 years old and I'm like weathered and gray haired and wrinkled and awesome, will I have wanted to get really good at being a keynote producer or really immerse myself in my art practice and all of the values and healing that I think will come from it, both for me and for my community. After I thought about it in that way, there was no other choice. I, that <laughs> Netflix imagery is right? gold. And yeah, I'm definitely your Netflix audience. Yes. yes. <laughs> I love yeah, you I'm, watch season two. <laughs> oh, I am there, girl. Yeah. I'm subscribed. Oh. It's been so cool watching your journey. You've been one of my inspo people. And like, mm-hmm. she did it. Maybe I can do you it can. too. I mean, so, and that's where I think it's, I, I would like to get real as well and talk about the logistics behind this because I don't want to be mm-hmm. airy fairy and just say, I followed my dreams and that is right. Is high. You know, it's not how it works. Yeah, we got rent to pay and all that. Yeah, all and, that jazz. And, and I think um, I was able to make that decision because I had been very lucky to work at a company like Twilio that magically did well, honestly. And it's like a weird 
very bizarre world of, of tech. I went from having like no savings and credit card debt to all of a sudden being like, okay, I actually have a little bit of a neck here and it's not huge. Yes, I'll need to be more frugal, but it's worth it. And it's, and it's enough savings to give myself the time and the space to build up an art practice that's going to feel sustainable and intentional. And that's where I'm at now. And I, and I think a lot of artists have a bunch of different revenue streams at once. Like you have merch and you have prints and you have this and you have this and that. And I didn't want to start out the gate doing that. I didn't want to have the yang energy, even with my stationary business. So much of it was like pitching and shipping and da 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 da. It was very like busy. Mm. And I wanted to mm-hmm. figure out a way is there actually a slower way to put my art into the world, to put my offerings into the world? That's going to be more sustainable. So yeah, I left at a time where I probably, I had enough savings to give myself about a year, maybe a year and a half of runway and then enough commissions that I could at least cover rent. I think like it's such a black box with art. Like even when I'm pricing things out to a commission client, they're like, how does this work? You know, and I think you have Mm. the capital A art world, which I'm not yet very in, but you know, you right. have art that can go for like five thousand, ten thousand dollars, and then you have people that think that paying like one hundred and fifty dollars for an original painting is not enough, and so, and then also you mm-hmm. have art that needs to be more accessible so that everybody can buy it. So it's like very mm. convoluted. It <laughs> is, yeah. There's all these different levels, and I think Instagram makes it more confusing mm-hmm. because you can follow like different levels of artists, mm-hmm. but it's within the same platform. Yes. So it sounds like as a visual artist. The fork in the road is like, what end of the market do you want to go for? Yes. And I think my niche right now is people around my age who are maybe buying their first ever original or commission painting. And, Mm. And I know about what's reasonable both for me and also for the person who's buying it. I'm not particularly motivated by having a lot of money. Like I, I want enough mm. to be comfortable. But for me, what's really motivating, it's actually the ability to like invest in other people and to give mm. back to my community. And so something that's baked into all of my sales forever, for always, is I always choose an organization to give back to. Um, and I want my patrons to know that, that like when they purchase a piece from me, what they're paying for is like, yes, the blood, sweat and tears that go into it, but also... <laughs> Like they're buying into like my values in a way. That's amazing. And I've always thought about philanthropy Mm -hmm. as like you first have to amass a ton of capital. Mm -hmm. And then once you have that buying power Mm -hmm. and then you start Mm -hmm. investing. Mm -hmm. But you're kind of saying, no, you can do that from the start. Yeah, it really does serve as a motivator for me. You know, I have people tell me, oh, Michelle, your painting should be more expensive. And I'm like, right now we're still kind of new. We're still building things up. But the times that I have upped my prices a little bit, it's like, oh, great. Like, I know that I can, you know, give this much more to an organization that I care about. Can you share how you price your work? I mean, I'm still trying to figure this out, but let's talk about commissions in particular. Was to think of commissioned work similar to how a graphic designer would think about their work. So, for example, like you're um, hiring me to think about and design like a logo, but not a logo, you know, like something beautiful for your home. And that takes time concepting a a composition that takes a custom color palette for you that also takes 
reviews um, with you, depending on, I, I offer like three levels of involvement. Like some people just want to be surprised, which is super fun. I just had a client and she just got the painting this weekend and she loved it. But she was like, I want this to be about like the love that connects all of us. And these are the colors I like, go. And she didn't want to see anything. And I was like, great. And so, so that fun. was super fun. And I'll usually price those a little bit lower because again, it comes down to time versus somebody. Mm-hmm. I had a really fun commission over the summer with a couple who really wanted it to be a fun activity for both of them. And so I would meet with them mm-hmm. and we'd review all the colors and the compositions. And that would be priced a little bit higher because that's more time. And mm-hmm. so I like set a rate for myself. And then I think about how many hours it's going to take. I show that to my client and I say like, this is about how many hours it's going to take. This is my rate. And so I price that out as like a commission fee. The commission fee is kind of like a base price. Like this is how much it's going to be to like, essentially hire me to be your artist to bring mm-hmm. this this concept mm-hmm. to life for you and then there's the price of the actual piece which includes labor and materials so that's been really useful for me and I think it also helps open the black box to my clients of like what is it that they're actually paying for because I think if you just have a price on a piece of art people that are haters of modern art for example are like well that's just like a circle on a thing and it's like <laughs> you, know, you know you're it's like somebody's ideas it's you're also paying for all of the failures that happen. It's not like every artist is going to perfectly make a composition and send it to you. You know, behind the right. scenes, I actually probably take like 10 to 20 more hours than I mm. quote people because you care about it so much. And do you do any shows or galleries? It's so funny, Jane. I have never allowed, even like entertained the idea of being in a gallery. I've had shows like in grad school. But I've, up until now, I think I was honestly really afraid of being seen and letting my mm. work be seen. So I was very comfortable with my little Instagram community and mm. the people who somehow found me and wanted me to make <laughs> art for their homes. It's really now that I'm like, okay, I'm ready. I have works that are bigger, they're on canvas. I'm going to be taking better photographs of them. I know inside I'm an artist and there are people who see me this way and so grateful that they want my art in their homes and their sacred spaces. Now it's time to see what does it look like to really put myself out there and really get my, my work in physical spaces and galleries. That makes me so happy to hear that you're finally comfortable yeah. and you've reached that point where you want your art to be seen. Yeah. And, and I want to fail, Jay. Like, I think that I didn't ever apply to anything. You know, I was very much just waiting for people to come to me and they did. And that was great. But like, I'm ready for somebody to say your work isn't for us and me to be like, great. Okay. Like, let's see where my work is supposed to be. The other topic I wanted to touch on, you have built this solid little community on Instagram. (laughs) And I'm curious how you approach it. Like, Mm. do you see it as a storefront Mm. for your business? Mm -hmm. Do you kind of see it as a personal space? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's morphing a little bit. It's like a pendulum swing. Either I need to be posting more of me because people want to see me or I just need to be Mm -hmm. posting more of my art. And I think one of the hardest things that's happened is artists have had to become content creators. And that Mm -hmm. is something that I'm not about. The Mm -hmm. philosophy that I have around it is I would rather have a smaller Instagram community and not have to continually put out content that doesn't feel authentic to me. That means 
actually having higher quality photos. Like now that I'm letting myself be a little bit more seen and wanting to put myself out there into more um, gallery spaces and residencies, I do want there to be a little bit more cohesion. But I don't want to post three times a week and post a reel and make sure I'm posting on stories every day. Mm. That doesn't feel authentic to me. I want to post content that feels cohesive and feels calming in a way and also feels informative. Like I still often post about social justice issues that I care about. I'm learning to think of it as one aspect of how people come to find me and hopefully not the only one. I think it's really easy to think like, oh, I got to post this thing on Instagram and that's it. It's like, no, like, let's think bigger. Um, Let's have Mm. Instagram as an incredible tool. I've met incredible people through it. I've gotten commissions from people that would have never found me had it not been for Instagram. But it's just one part. Mm, One piece. This has been awesome. It's so fun. Very inspirational. I love that you bring this message of slowing down mm. because so much of the entrepreneurship content I see out there is like hustle, grind, growth, do the thing. Mm. And sure, that's part of the journey. Mm. But I love that you're presenting this alternate option mm. of like, it doesn't have to be fast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can nurture your lifestyle and your art practice and be happy with that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing some of your tips and strategies and stories today. Of course. It was such a pleasure. And I think we all end up in this slow place eventually. There's so many stories of, of entrepreneurs that after 10 years, 20 years, go to Esalen and meditate for 20 years, right? And so it's like, well, <laughs> right. maybe you wouldn't have to drop everything if we just infused mm. your life with some of those more right. slower mindfulness practices. And you can still run your business and be a badass. Um, exactly. Yeah. And some of the most successful businesses have been run over like 20, 30 years. Yeah. It just takes, takes a long time to build something yeah. great. Well, I'm so inspired by you, Jane. It's just so cool to see you doing this. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. How would you spend your time if you didn't have to worry about money? I'd love to know. Send me a DM or share an Instagram story and tag me at Inside Out with Jane. And hey, if you're not already subscribed to the podcast, make sure to hit follow on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Talk to you online and see you back here next Tuesday. Bye.